Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Shade Kabiri Ameri. Dr. Shade Kabiri Ameri is an assistant professor in the Department of Electrical and Computing Engineering in the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science at Queen's University. Her research focuses on 2D material-based electronic devices, their applications in wearables, bioelectronics, human-machine interface, electronic tattoos, Internet of Things, and mobile health care. She leads the Ameri Nano Research Group, which is an organization interested in looking for innovative and novel solutions for technological challenges by applying na- nanosciences to engineering. In 2017, Dr. Ameri was awarded the Rising Star in EECE. Hello, Shade. Hello. Thank you for being on Blind Date with Knowledge today. Thank you for having me. I'm particularly interested in all the things we talked about in the uh, pre uh, in the warm up of the today's episode. I'm interested in the e tattoo. Can you explain what this is and how it's used? Sure. Electronic tattoos or e tattoos are ultra thin and ultra soft electronic devices and sensors that can be laminated on a skin, just like as temporary tattoos. Now, how are they applied? I know in, in the old days, we used to buy these um, decals and we'd put them in water and then peel off. Uh, is that how that works? Or yes, do you, exactly. Yeah? So, so talk a little bit more about that. And how long does it stay on your skin and how do you remove it? Okay, sure. So these electronic um, uh, tattoos that we are making, actually, we use graphene in their construction, which is um, a monolayer of carbon atoms. It's ultra, it's very, very thin. It's less than one nanometer in thickness. So it's really, really thin material, but it has very good uh, electrical properties. That's why we can use it for making this kind of electronic uh, and sensor, electronics and sensors. So um, the way we actually um, laminate them on the skin is just like as you explained. We make these devices on tattoo paper and then place them on the skin. And then with backside of the tattoo paper, there is a water-soluble layer or, uh, which actually dissolves uh, when you apply water to the uh, paper. And that water-soluble layer is between the sensor and the paper. So results in detaching the sensor from the paper and attaching it to a skin. Right. And how about getting it off your skin? Do you um, need alcohol or how, do, how does that work? No, actually, because the mechanism of we don't apply any adhesive, any tape between the sensor and the skin. The reason these uh, sensors are actually at the, uh, sticking to the skin is that, this, uh, as I mentioned, these sensors go through all microscopic features of a skin mm. and form conformal contact to it. We use um, the, the mechanism of adhesion is Van der Waals force, which is intermolecular um, interaction with, uh, resulting is very weak. But because the sensors are very light, is 
enough to keep them on the skin for extended amount of time which if you don't apply anything absolutely on the skin it by itself can stay um, like as uh, four to five hours mm-hmm. but if um, we, we actually sometimes spray a kind of uh, polymer which is known as uh, li- um, liquid bandage right um, you use that to uh, you can buy it from pharmacy right and it's for covering the wound f- uh, and protecting it from germs and um, dust so you can spray that on top of the sensor and then after that it's waterproof and it can stay up to two days on the, the skin now you've You've talked about nanotechnology, and you were talking about molecular level uh, <laughs> confirmation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Ameri Nano Research Group? W- what do you do? What are you looking for? What are you producing? Um, in my group, we are looking for innovative solutions for the problems that cannot be addressed using conventional um, methodology or a conventional technology. So we are using nanomaterials and two-dimensional materials um, to uh, make this kind of uh, sensors and electronics instead of using uh, conventional metals and semiconductor films. And the reason is that this material have superior, uh, many times they have superior mechanical property, they have superior electrical properties, chemical properties, optical properties. For example, 2D materials like as graphene, they are inherently flexible. Mm-hmm. So they are not like as metal and semiconductor, which are rigid. Right. So they can be bent easily. So it's perfect for uh, constructing something like as electronic tattoos. Uh, also, they are optically transparent. Like as graphene has just three percent of absorption of light in um, uh, in visible region, so that res- help to reduce the visibility of this device on the skin. Um, you probably like to have uh, wearable sensors that can wear and go to your meetings or classes without people noticing it, but I still get the recording and send it to your doctor. Wearable technology. Yes. Fantastic. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston. We're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website, or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, Shadeh, back to you. How did you get into this field? Um, I started my, uh, actually, college with medical sciences. And by studying medical sciences, I realized that there is significant gap between medical sciences and engineering. So I realized the technological advancement can be used effectively and efficiently for um, prevention, diagnosis, curing, and treatments of the disease. It can help um, to assist uh, to to assist disabled people. It can actually help people who are suffering. Uh, 
uh, have better life. Um, it can also help us to not to fall in problems. So that was um, when I felt, okay, so I may can um, contribute in um, technological advancement of the medical devices and bio, uh, bioelectronic devices by uh, uh, doing this kind of research which I'm doing. That's fa- fantastic. Now, it sounds to me like you've got a, a keen interest in the technology, but also you're motivated by the humanistic output, the, the benefit to society, exactly. the benefit to humankind. Exactly. It's very commendable. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge is Dr. Shade Kabiri Ameri, assistant professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering in the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science at Queen's University. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Shade, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc. Thank you for tuning in. Generally, although, you know, we like to think that men and women are becoming more equal in lots of ways uh, in households, uh, you know, in couples or in families, it's still women who are doing a lot of the food work. Um, And even though men might be doing more of the cooking uh, or maybe even the cleaning up, it's we find that the women are still doing a lot of the what we call the invisible work. Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. In this episode, my guest is Elaine Power. Dr. Elaine Power is an associate professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies and cross-appointed in the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's. She is the co-editor of the recently published book, Messy Eating, Conversations on Animals as Food, and the forthcoming volume, Feminist Food Studies, Intersectional Perspectives. Her research focuses on issues related to poverty, class, health, and food security. In particular, Dr. Power uses qualitative research methods and critical social theory to investigate food practices, especially in relation to income and social class. She's also a founding member of the Canadian Association for Food Studies and the Kingston Action Group for a Basic Income Guarantee. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you. Pleasure having you here. I'm delighted to be here. You have so many interesting books, and and the topic of food and uh, these these sort of uh, cultural anthropological uh, contexts are really fascinating. I'd like to start off by asking you about a different book which you co-authored, which is called Acquired Tastes: Why Families Eat the Way They Do. 
So can you give us an overview of this research and how food habits are shaped by class, health, poverty, and food security? I'd be happy to do that. Um, So that book came out of a fantastic research project that I feel really fortunate to have been involved with. There were uh, five of us across the country in different cities in Canada, and we each um, did interviews in our home community and in a neighboring kind of more rural community. So uh, we interviewed over, well, we did over 400 interviews. Wow. Um, in a hundred fam about a hundred families, and we interviewed at least one parent and one teenager in each of those families, and we did at generally two interviews with each with the parent and the teen, and we were interested in understanding why people eat the way they do, why they eat the way they do, and because we were national, we were um, in there was Halifax. Kingston, Toronto, Edmonton, and Vancouver. We were also interested in understanding if there were regional differences in how people ate. We looked at things like social class and gender and ethnicity. And um, I was particularly interested in issues related to social class. Right. How did you come to select the uh, families or and individuals that you interviewed? Um, mostly uh, it varied depended, depending on the the researcher and the community, but uh, it was kind of random and word of mouth. We put, um, you know, this was kind of the, still the the old days before social media was really as popular as it is now. So we would you know, put ads in newspapers or on listservs and in public places. So generally, I would say that uh, we got people who were at least had some interest in food. Um, we did try, you know, to get a range of people from particularly, you know, different class backgrounds, different occupations. Um, the In Toronto, there were two neighborhoods, uh, Riverdale and, and Parkdale. So try to, again, try to get a contrasting um, sample of people. So so talk about the findings. I'm fascinated to hear what are, the, what are some of the things that you've learned. Um, well, one of, the th- one of the really striking things was that Everywhere people talked about food in relation to health. So the message about, you know, that uh, food is important for health, I think goes across class, ethnicity, across the country. The only difference actually um, in the in looking at our data, there were there were a small group at a kind of an elite group, um, very wealthy, well-educated people who actively dismissed health as a, um, as a, as their basis for what they ate. They hmm. were actually more interested in taste, authenticity, um, kind of the uh, scarcity, you know, like a high, high end. Um, so they were more interested in eating as, according to aesthetic um, criteria. And um, this, uh, I'm really a follower of a, a French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, Who's dead now, but uh, I've really been influenced by his so- sociological theory, and he would say that was a a way of of marking distinction, of showing that you know you're not like other people. So we use food as a way to tell ourselves, but also others, who we are. Yeah, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about this sort of elite group because mm-hmm. there's a a subset of people who have a different concept, or at least a partial partial different concept about food. I think now we're also experiencing a lot of the 
buy local, eat local kind of a thing. And that perhaps reflects a kind of a maybe a more extensive, more middle class kind of approach to food. But yet I don't can tell me if there's an awareness about food insecurity, you know, because we're so lucky to be able to just, I don't know, hop in the car or the, mm. get on the bus and go to the grocery store. But for people who are below a certain income threshold, that's not the reality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yes. Um, how many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you use the, that language of food insecurity, which I think is a, it's a little bit of a jargony term in the sense of not everybody understands what it means. So really, food insecurity is a, is a concept that relates to the ability to, to buy the food that we need and want. And so we know that in Canada, there are about approximately 4 million Canadians, about 12% of the population, who uh, objectively by survey, um, you know, Canadian government survey, are classified as food insecure. So they either don't have the money they need to buy what they need to eat, um, or they're actively managing household resources to make things stretch, and the, the the most moderate or the the, the least severe category is called um, uh, marginal food insecurity, where people are really worried. They haven't actively started changing what they eat, but they're very worried about not being able to put food on the table. So, um, we did have some food insecure households in the in that sample of people in the book. Um, we also one of the um, chapters that I co-authored in that book was about people who moved, um, they, their class trajectory was either upward or downward. So we had uh, you know, people who either came from really poor households and became successful um, and financially secure. And we also had some people in the op- who went the opposite direction who grew up in very secure households who landed in poverty. And we were one of the things we were interested in in that book is like, how does that impact how people eat now? And again, we saw this very strong um, way that people use food to mark their social class so that uh, the people who had a downward social trajectory, although they were really quite financially constrained, still tried to eat um, according to their class of origin, which was higher. To, again, to say, you know, I'm this sort of person. <laughs> I'm not a poor person. <laughs> That's right. So we're talking a little bit about class. We've talked a little yeah. bit about economics. What about gender? How does that influence uh, concepts related to food uh, generation, food insecurity, food consumption, food preparation? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, well, we could talk for hours more about that. <laughs> um, so generally, although, you know, we like to think that men and women are becoming more equal in lots of ways uh, in households, uh, you know, in couples or in families, it's still women who are doing a lot of the food work. Um, and even though men might be doing more of the cooking uh, or maybe even the cleaning up, it's we find that the women are still doing a lot of the invi- what we call the invisible work, the work uh, that goes on in your head about okay, well, and some maybe you've had the experience like I've had of um, being in the grocery store and generally it's a man who's phoning home to mm-hmm. say <laughs> on his cell phone to say they have this kind and this kind which would you which 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 do we want and uh, so it's uh, a lot of that work is really invisible and one of the things that was really interesting in that study that we've been talking about 
um, we asked people there was uh, we asked people if they had less money how they would cut back and uh, you know people made some obvious suggestions but there were others that like that kind of invisibility invisible work of um, managing in in your head you know who likes what um, what's in already in the fridge what's about to expire how do I put the meal together um, a lot of that is still women's work. There's so many more things I'd like to ask about, but uh, we need to move on to our, our uh, final segment of the show. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to share something personal related to their research or their motivation associated with their research. So, Elaine, the microphone is back to you. Well, um, as we've been discussing, you know, I'm really interested in food in relation to poverty and income and class. Um, my passion really is about food insecurity, and uh, I have a um, I have a background in nutrition. I in a previous life was a dietitian, um, and and I understand food in relation to health, but I also understand food in relation to the symbolic value of telling people who we are. Um, and I, I've been for many years at Queens. I've been teaching a course called the Social Determinants of Health, where mm. we're interested in how income um, affects. Well, sorry, not just income, but income in relation to health, things like homelessness and poverty and racism, and so the kind of big structural issues and how they impact health. So I think my passion really is for social justice. Mm. Um, and ensuring that everyone has um, the opportunity to be the best that they can be. And income is uh, kind of a material foundation for that. And without that, um, people struggle, um, whether that's students, um, it doesn't matter. I mean, that it's like we all need basic necessities of life. And I think um, as a society, we have an obligation to each other to ensure that everyone has basic necessities of life. Was there something in your life that kind of brought you down that path? Were your parents sort of social activists? Was it a religious uh, experience? Was it going to school? What, what brought you to that? Because not everybody, obviously, is, uh, is concerned about those kinds of things. That's a really good question. Um, no, my parents, my dad was a, I suppose, you know, he was a union activist. I grew up in a blue collar family. I'm the first in my family to go to university. Um, my parents, uh, I grew up in Cape Breton um, in a small community. My parents um, were really limited in what they could do in their lives because of their family backgrounds um, of being brought up in circumstances where they, they couldn't go to university. They were right. certainly smart enough, but they didn't have that opportunity. Um, and so I guess I think growing up in Cape Breton, you you can I could really see, even as a kid, as a child and as a teenager, how material circumstances shaped people's opportunities and uh, and and how much of that is unfair. Right. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio. 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston. We're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca research. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge has been Elaine Power, 
Associate Professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Elaine Power, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.